So she repeated herself many times, at least four. And Jackie and I still could not understand what she was saying. We repeated, she repeated herself, and, and I know she was speaking English, but we could not. And that's back when we were younger, so we had good hearing then. Don't blame the hearing. She said it, and she said it exactly the same way four different times or so, and Jackie and I just finally couldn't, couldn't, couldn't grasp what she was saying. This was our first experience in, in the South. This, uh, this gal was at a Walmart south of Nashville, and uh, we were kind of from the Northwest. We're, you know, we talk like this, you know. We think it's this the way you're supposed to talk. But uh, different regions of our country, as you know, have different dialects. And this gal was very Southern, and she, uh, she had a heavy, heavy Southern accent, and we just could not understand what she was saying. And then you feel embarrassed after a while. I mean, you almost feel like you're insulting them because you're asking them to repeat it several times. I mean, she was speaking English, but we were the foreigners. We felt like we were the foreigners. Now, it could be that maybe you've had some travels and you've, you've experienced some of that. You know, Jackie and I were in Europe last year, and it was interesting being in a place where you don't really understand anything that's going on around you. People are talking, there's signs. You think you should know, what you know what's going on, but you don't really know what's going on. And you don't know the language, you don't know the culture, you don't know uh, really about, about the food. That's kind of intimidating. If you're somewhere like that and you want to get some food, especially if you're hungry, you know what I'm saying? If you're hungry, you don't want to mess with translation. You know, you want food. And those, those experiences where you're out of sorts, where you're out of your normal culture, out of, out of the way that your language and your customs, it can feel unsettling. The last five days I've had the privilege of being in uh, south of San Diego, about a mile from Tijuana, or TJ as they call it, down there. And it was interesting that everywhere me and my friend went, he's going to be planting a church down there. Super excited for him. He and his wife, are, they're going to do a great job. But everywhere we went, we were the minority by a long shot. We went to work out a couple days ago at the YMCA there. We're only a mile from the border. You can actually see it. And uh, you're, you're on the treadmill and you're like, that's Tijuana. And I look around. And other than me and my buddy... Nobody is my race. Our, many of us are. None of our, and I thought, you know, and it didn't bother me at all. But, you know, when you're, when you're in a place where you're in, you're kind of out of, you know, maybe you, you stand out a little bit, your language, your culture, that sort of thing, you know, it can, it can feel a, a little unsettling. But I embraced it because I realized Jesus' love translates all tribes, all nations, all people groups, and it just, it, it just made me recharged. I came back just recharged from that trip, excited about what God, God's going to do. Now, my, my friends, they are white. No one on their launch team are Caucasian. And I loved it. I thought that was beautiful. And it's just how God kind of orchestrated everything. Now, their children's pastor, she speaks uh, English and Spanish. 
And what was interesting, uh, yesterday, I was on a soccer field, and I, I was, I was kind of helping with their girls. They have three girls, and I was sitting kind of in the middle of the soccer field. And again, probably, I looked around. I'm the only white guy for, for miles, probably. And I'm sitting down with their girls. Then all these other girls from the different families came, and we're probably after, so there's like 20 or 30 of us sitting there, and they're all around me, and they're playing this puzzle, and I'm the white guy in the middle. And all these, all these you know, kids, then the parents come over. They want to know what's going on. Right, they're looking, and they were so awesome. They were so nice. They wanted, they asked my, who my, what my name was, and and they're all, you know, the kids are going back and forth between Spanish and English. It was a beautiful thing. In fact, if you're down in those areas, you realize that that if if you're if you're if you speak two different languages like English and Spanish, you go back and forth all the time. It's like if you can't convey something in the language that you happen to be speaking to, you'll flip over to the other language, and the other person knows what's going on. They go back and forth. It's just like a beautiful thing, and they're, they're communicating, they're expressing it, but it reminded me that Jesus' love goes over all those boundaries. You know, We have issues with our boundaries sometimes. Jesus doesn't. He, he, he broke those barriers. It was so encouraging. Doesn't that feel encouraging? I don't know. That was just fun to be down there for a while. Have you ever experienced that? Who in here has been in a foreign land where you didn't speak the, didn't speak the language? Okay. Well, that's a good amount of us. All right. How does that feel? You know? I realize now we have these devices called smartphones, you know, the, these kids these days. But these phones, like, you, you now can, like, take a foreign language a menu and you can hold up your phone. Have you, have you ever, ever done this? Who's done this? You hold up the phone to the actual menu, and it'll tr- it translates it right in front of you. It's bizarre. I don't even know that. It's like it feels like it's magic. I don't know. Some crazy thing. You know, when we were in France, which, you know, I really want to make sure I was ordering the right thing in France, you put your phone in front, and it translates the menu right in front of you. I don't, I don't even know how that technology works, but that is awesome. You felt like that. Some of you felt like that, where you're in a different place, you feel out of sorts because you don't know the culture, you don't know the right things to say, you don't have the phrasing down. You know, it feels different to be a foreigner in a foreign land. You feel maybe alone, a little bit alienated. Maybe you kind of feel like left out, you know, a fish out of water. That's what we've been kind of looking at here already in week two of the series that we're in called Exiles, the people of God awaiting home. If you missed last week, Andrew did a great job, our next-gen pastor did a great job of queuing this up and and starting with the concept of of this idea of exile in the Bible. It it shows up over and over. In fact, as he said, and I really believe this now, I can't even read the Bible the same way anymore because over and over I see how exile has played out. Back even at the beginning of humanity, you know, Garden of Eden, sin and the exile from the garden. We've, we've been a people of exile, a people of God awaiting home. And, and we've been in this series now, this is week two, and we're going to look at specifically today a little bit more into a key identity marker of the people of God that happened around 586 B.C. And that's the event we're going to look at and see how that shaped the people of God, even up to the New Testament era and, and the Jews in Jesus' day. So today, let's just pause for a word of prayer. We're going to launch into today's message. It's really talking about Israel, Babylon, and this whole thing of the ethic of exile. So let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your love, your faithfulness, your mercies are new every morning. Lord, we come this morning 
just need uh, just a fresh uh, a glimpse of you today, Father. May your Holy Spirit move and shape and change us today. Father, we look at this idea of exile and help us, Father, to understand what we're to be about while we're a people of God awaiting for the final home. That one day where the kingdom does come and you have new, new heavens, new earth, new creation. Father, help us to be a people who love you and serve you even in exile. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can start turning to 2 Kings. And while you're doing that, let me just kind of, for a background, uh, kind of cue up a little bit of this story. Uh, remember, the, 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 the scriptures, a good portion of the, of the whole Bible really talks about one particular family line. Starting with, you can go back all the way to, to Genesis if you wanted to, but really, it really kind of queued up with this guy named Abraham. And he was kind of a, kind of a big story in the Old Testament. And this guy was kind of like the patriarch of what would become the nation of Israel. And there's many generations between Abraham and then, then he had sons and they had sons and daughters. And they, you, you follow this family line throughout Scripture and at one point, I'm skipping ahead, I'm, I'm totally paraphrasing this, so you, many of you Bible scholars out there are like, wait a minute, you skipped this. Well, I'm trying to just get us up to speed. So this family line, we, we trace them through Scripture, and we, we kind of trump through Genesis, and we go through a lot of, of years here. I don't know how many years, but we're going through years, and finally we end up at another key person in Scripture, a guy named Moses, who's, again, part of that family line, the, the Hebrews, by then they were named uh, because of their kind of their tribe and their ethnic, the Hebrew people. And so they were, they were in, kind of enslaved in the nation of Israel. And this guy Moses, he was kind of the hero of the story. And he brought, by God's command, all those people out. And the whole idea of bringing them out was to create the nation of Israel. A nation that would be radically different and would finally answer what God said he was going to do back with Abraham. Because God promised Abraham, through you, all nations would be blessed. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. That promise was given to Abraham a long time ago. And so this nation was going to be God's people. They were going to, they were going to serve God as king, not some earthly king. God was going to be king. And and so Moses and these people, they, they came to this land, the Canaan, ancient Canaan, and, and they were going to set up this, 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 this temple worship, this tabernacle at first, and God was going to be in the center of everything. God was going to be their king. This is going to be a nation whose God and president and CEO and prime minister was God. And it sounded really good. But the people of God struggled, struggled Struggled. They struggled with the identity of other nations and the other gods that they were, the nations were serving. They, 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 they really struggled to try to figure out and then be the people of God. Eventually, this, this, this nation of people, the Israelites, uh, even though they were settled in kind of their, their homeland or the promised land, uh, they, they wanted a king like everybody else. Andrew kind of cued that up a little bit. That the nation said, well, we like you, God. You're pretty cool. We want a king because that's what all the cool kids got. They wanted a king, and so this started a whole process that led to civil war and the breakup of the nation and king after king, starting with Saul. And if you don't know these stories, that's okay, but the first king of Israel was this guy Saul. And scripture says they chose him because why? Because he was tall and a pretty good-looking guy. I mean, you know, that's... 
That's how leadership went back in the day. I'm not sure God called him up. He didn't last very long. And this is kind of the, the, the sordid tale of scripture. Humanity, it's a great idea, but we screw up so often. Started with Saul and then that didn't work out. And he starts like trying to skewer people with, with spears because he's having some issues. And that one of those guys he tried to skewer was a little guy named David. And we find that he becomes king. You know, I'm, I'm totally paraphrasing, you know this. We get to David, and that worked out for a while. And some people say, well, maybe that was the golden era of Israel. But then, I don't know, I think his, uh, his son, David's son that came next, probably was the seal of the deal. This was probably the golden era. King Solomon, and even if you don't know the Bible, you probably heard of King Solomon and his wisdom, and, and Solomon built, and people were coming from all over the ancient world to come hang out with, 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 with Solomon and just hear his I mean, if you read the scripture, I mean, Solomon was a smart guy. I mean, he knew like biology and science and art and all these things. And people were coming to him. And then Solomon made some bad decisions, multiple bad decisions. And that led to his sons rebelling. And I, I know I'm paraphrasing here, but after Solomon's death, things really go sideways very fast. After Solomon's death, you have people bickering over power it's a sordid tale. It happened all the way through our history of humanity. And so these people are fighting. I want to be king. I want to be king. Well, I'm going to kill my dad so I can be king. These things were, were happening. And, and eventually, after that death of King Solomon and all these generations, hundreds of years, good kings, bad kings, good leadership, bad leadership, walking away from God, civil war led to two nations. Eventually, it was two nations. It was the northern tribes and the southern tribe of Judah. The northern tribes, they set up their own place of worship. They didn't need Jerusalem. They set up Samaria, and they had their area of worship. And so you had two different places of worship, two different countries, all supposedly being the people of God. And this is not how it was intended. This is not how the story that we were hoping for. And eventually, the northern tribes were taken away by, if you know your history, what was then the biggest world power at the time was this nation of Assyria. And that was a brutal nation. I mean, the, the history is not, is not kind on the kinds of ways that they waged war. Well, historians are not really sure what happened to most of the people when they were deported and Assyria took over the northern kingdoms. We don't know what happened. In fact, some scholars call them the lost tribes of Israel. Maybe you've heard that term the lost tribes, because they were either decimated, destroyed. They never really, never really formed ever again. So then the northern kingdom's gone. That was in 722 B.C., very attested by archaeology. That left what? The southern tribe, fending for itself, called themselves Judah. And that southern tribe hung on. And there were some good kings and some good times, and then there was the bad times. Up and down we went. And then finally, because of disobedience, another world power came to be that took over most of the ancient world named Babylon. And Babylon came and wiped through all the ancient world and this little pesky nation of Judah. All that was left of what was supposed to be the people of God, this great nation where God was king, left that little Judah nation. And this big Babylonian empire, and probably they thought all was lost. You know, I would imagine even the people would say, you know, I thought God was our God. 
I thought Yahweh was the power. Yahweh could handle anything. Now look at these Babylonians. Maybe, maybe the Babylonian God is stronger. You see what's happening here? The people are, are beleaguered. They're, they're, they're wondering what's going on. What a God, what are you doing? I thought we were supposed to be the people. Well, Babylon grew to power and, uh, in 586, 587 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar and his commander said, we're done with this little annoying group of people that keeps rebelling. And we're going to take over. Not, not just that, we're going to take all our good stuff. We're going to take everything out of the temple. We're going to destroy the temple. We're going to break down the, the walls of the city. We're going to decimate this place. And we're going to cart off the best of the best of the people. 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 8. On the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And what did he do? He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. That was a signature moment for the people of God. And maybe you'd never read that before, but I mean, it's pretty clear. The Babylonians came in. Now, the prophets had been warning about this, right? So it wasn't just like God turned the switch and all of a sudden, you know, they're being, you know, they're, they're, they're hurting. The prophets had been coming for years saying, please return to God, please return to God. And sometimes the people would, most of the time they wouldn't. And so this shouldn't have surprised anybody. But here's Babylon coming in and destroying every house, every important building. But there's always, there's always something powerful. Even in the midst of things that you think are the worst of the worst. Do you know who was in that first wave of people that the king of Babylon took to Babylon? Do you remember his name? little guy named Daniel. And he had a few friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, however you want to call them. You may be on a first-name basis with them. But isn't that interesting that even then, there was a remnant of people that still wanted to honor Yahweh as king. No Babylonian god could trump our god. And so there were some now, it wasn't just one wave. They took several waves. If you read the scriptures, I think there were about four or five different waves of people taken. And they left some behind, as you saw. They left kind of the, maybe the folks that are maybe older, and maybe those who maybe weren't as important to the king of Babylon. Because what would happen is Babylon would conquer these nations. And what did they do? They cherry-picked. Get the good, you know, get the strong, get the, get the young. And if you can, also get their God. Because then you're kind of hedging your bets, right? As a big nation, as an empire, you want to get as many people praying to their God or whatever for you. So isn't that weird? They would conquer nations, take the best of this, then also take the religion, hoping that maybe there'll be some good, you know, goodwill there. All this done, these people were in exile. 
I love what one scholar wrote about this whole exile moment to Babylon. It said, you know, this, this is one of the primary historical incidents upon which the hope for Messiah's coming was established. You see, when the people were taken away, they thought, it's done, it's over. This experiment failed. The nation, the people of God, this nation, it's over. But the people had hope because they knew that some of the prophets, including Isaiah and Jeremiah, talked about a Messiah coming, a new kind of king would be coming. They just didn't know where. But this sealed the deal for them because they knew their temple was destroyed, worship was destroyed, their identity was being threatened. The entire thing of the nation of Israel was pretty much decimated. But they had a hope that one day there would be a king who would come from the line of Jew that, that would restore, he would, he would bring us back, that we would be renewed, that we could end this exile. There was a hope out there. The prophets telling the people, you're in exile, but God has something for you. And the people remembered those promises. And so the people were there in Babylon, a city they didn't really know, a language they had to learn, customs they didn't know, food they didn't normally eat, right? They're in exile. They have to learn what to do. Now, now they have a decision to make. What do we do in exile? What kinds of people are we to be? Do we let go of our identity completely? Intermarry? They got in trouble for that before, remember? Lots of times. Well, now what do we do? And we're, the, we're the people of God, but we're not home. Do we intermarry? Do we accept their culture? Do, do we, is it dishonoring to God to learn the language even? Some scholars think this is when the Hebrew language started to, to largely die out for the people. They had to learn other languages like Aramaic and later Greek. We're, what are we supposed to do in exile? Are we supposed to embrace? Are we supposed to do this? Are we supposed to hold up? Or are we supposed to somehow be engaged in the life of, of the city of Babylon? What would they to do? Now, history would play out here, and this is why this is so crucial. This was a watershed moment for the nation of Israel. This was an identity marker. From this point on, they just felt like they were a people of exile. Now, yes, at some point, if, you, if we skip ahead, there's going to be another king, and he's going to allow them to allow some of the people, some of those first, second wave of, of, of folks, to go back and try to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the city walls, try to, try, to, try to bring it up to some level like it was before, but it never was. Under Ezra and Nehemiah, the people did come back, and some of the kings even funded some of the work, again, hedging their bets. If we make this God Yahweh happy, maybe it'll help us, right? So there's always, a, there's always an agenda. There's always a motive. So the people did come back for a while, but it never felt like home. Never felt like home. At this point forward, from this exile, Israel as a nation largely failed to ever materialize again. They were never a world power. Even when they came back, who came next, if you remember world history? Alexander the Great. I thought we had it. We're back at home. Alexander the Great comes. Then you have the Roman Empire. They were always a people waiting for home. They were home, but it didn't feel, didn't feel like home. You know what I'm saying? They were back, but it never, 
And so the nation never really got back to what it was. They began to lose some of that, that, that long history. They began to lose it. It was a watershed moment. During this exile, this, this whole experiment in Babylon, these some 70-some years, you know, that's a couple generations, they began to lose some of their identity marker. This is when, when the Hebrew people began to be known as the Jews. This is the time when synagogue worship was begun. Why? Why did they have to, why did they have to worship in a synagogue? What was gone? No temple. Temple's a long way away. In fact, it's destroyed. Even after they came back, and I'm skipping ahead and back and forth, but even that they, after they kind of fixed it up, it never really, down the road, Herod the Great will kind of build it up, and he was kind of a weirdo. The people never really got back to the way things were, and they had synagogue worship. They were now known as the Jewish people. And here's the big thing that I think this exile really helped the nation really, really get a hold of. Not to worship idols anymore. If anything, that was a big lesson. I think the people of God began to realize these dead idols and stuff, they don't work. And they would have been surrounded in Babylon by plenty of idols, all kinds of things. And later when Rome takes over, they had all kinds of icons too. They have places you'd worship whatever god of the war or god of the crops. They learned, we don't, we don't worship idols anymore. In fact, they learned it so well that some of you know history. There's a, there's a time period before kind of the, the first century, and we call it the Maccabean period. And there was a moment where those who came back, right, those who came back and tried to rebuild some of the temple, they were home, but it didn't really feel like home because they kept being conquered, but they were still there. They were the remnant there. And they, they, they had set up the temple, and, and, and they were worshiping, but then, and then they had folks come in and, and kind of def, de, defame the temple and blaspheme the temple, and the people of God would not have it because they learned we don't worship idols. So they learned some powerful stuff in exile. But let me go back to the question. What are we supposed to do in exile? They must have been thinking that. What do we do here? We're here and they were there for several generations. Again, let's return to this question because I think it's relevant for us here right now in our culture. We are surrounded maybe by folks who don't necessarily agree with our faith, right? And that's exactly how the Babylonians probably felt to the the Israelites. These folks there that are in exile, they they don't... they don't live like us. They don't eat like us. And so what do you, ha- what do, you do in exile? Do you, do you embrace that culture and just forget your culture? Do you keep on to your culture and fight for it, right? Maybe, maybe hold up in maybe some, you know, some, some place somewhere and physically keep out those Babylonians? You see the two extremes there? Have we done that over the last 2,000 years of church history? We either go away hide it away, we're going to fight it, or we kind of blend in and now we've lost our identity. What do we do? Interesting that you ask that. <laughs> Jeremiah, the prophet, now let's, I want you to find, I want you to go to Jeremiah 29, 11. If you have, or Jeremiah 29, not 11. Everybody knows Jeremiah 29, 11, but I want to show you the context of that chapter. It will blow your mind if you've never read this before. Jeremiah 29 is a lot more than a little bumper sticker phrase. And I know the plans I have for you. Plans, you know that probably if you've been around the church. Anyway. Jeremiah 29 is important. 
This is the prophet telling the people what they are to do when they're in exile. And I think this is really relevant for us. I'm going to start with verse 1 of chapter 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. Remember, they cherry-picked all the good people, right? Verse 3, the letter was sent by the hand of uh, Elisah, the son of Shaphan and Jemariah, and the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. It said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, are you ready for this? To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Listen, this is big. Build houses. Live in them. Plant gardens and eat the produce. This is crazy. Do you see the next one? Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Multiply. Thrive in exile. And do not decrease, but seek the welfare, seek the welfare of the city. This is Babylon, this pagan city. Seek seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Put it on your prayer list. These pagan Babylons don't deserve our prayers. They're pagans. You see, do you feel the radical nature here of what's going on? This is crazy, right? This is how they're supposed to be in exile. Pray to the Lord on his behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise to you and bring you back to this place. For, here's that verse, for I know the plans for you. Who? Those in exile. I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will, I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I'll stop there. The prophets are telling them what they ought to do while they're in exile. Now, do you think the people are like, great, that sounds good. Let's do that. Or did they struggle with that? Did they struggle? Well, we have to turn to the Psalms to see. They did struggle. You mean we're supposed to pray for these people? We're supposed to marry, have children? We're in exile. Why would God want us to thrive in exile? Much less, we're supposed to plant gardens and and like feed people and, and pray for the city and seek the good of the city. Why would they do that? Why would God call them to do that? 
Because the nation was supposed to be a blessing for all nations. You see the theme there coming back? And you know we're still in exile, awaiting home. But while we're here, God has some things he wants us to do. Crazy, huh? This is ancient Israel. You think that's ancient news? It actually comes right here this morning. Now listen to what, what the psalmist record the people struggling with this a little bit. And here's what I want to do. I want to read these and I want you to close your eyes. These are songs. These are coming from the heart. This is not an academic adventure right now. Just listen. Close your eyes and just listen to me read these. I'm going to just read two bits of psalms here. One from Psalm 74, verse 1 and 2. Close your eyes. Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance. In this Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Oh, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept. We remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps, for there our captives demanded us of songs, of our tormentors, mirth, saying, sing, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Oh, but how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my, my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the root of my mouth. If I, if I don't remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. See, these exiles, they lived in tension. The tension of how do we seek the good of the city and, and not compromise? How do we, how do we honor God and, and, and serve our community and not, not compromise? You see the tension. How do we... How do we live in a, how do they live in exile? How do we do this? You know, having a, a role in the social fringe of society, displaced nationally, spiritually, physically displaced they were. They had few rights. They were a minority and always threatened by the imposition of pagan Babylonian practices. How were they going to do this? How are they going to do this? And the prophets ring out again. Seek the good of the city. Pray for the city. Thrive. Feed people. Thrive in exile. You see, this isn't the only story of exile. Now, I think this is a pretty watershed moment for the whole nation and really probably for us. But, you know, there's other stories of exile in Scripture. You know, there's, there's the happy story of Ruth. If you remember Ruth, that's kind of an exile story, you know? The people kind of you know, leave the, the God, you know, the, the the nation of Israel. They go to Moab, and and they and they're trying to, uh, you know, get food. And and then you have this gal named Ruth who marries, you know, a son, and then that son dies, and then she she's left without a country, without a people, and she goes back to live in a foreign land, and God blesses her and the whole family. That's a happy story of exile. Ruth is happy. She's got, a, got his husband again, and, and it, you know, the story turns around for her. It wasn't so right away for, for the nation of Israel. They longed, like the prophet Isaiah said, for a rebuilding, a restoration, a future king and a future hope and this, this Messiah. So how were they to do this whole living in exile? And here's, here's a concept I want to get out. And it's something that I think is going to hold true all the way through as we, we get through the last, you know, couple of messages in the series. The concept is this, and if you have your notes, feel free to take this note down. 
The idea of loyalty and subversion. Loyalty and subversion. See, the exiles were, were told by the prophet, hey, seek the good of the city. Thrive in captivity. Seek the good of the city and serve the Lord. So, so be, be loyal to loving the city and helping the city and praying. Be loyal there as a good citizen of whatever country you're in. But always serve God as king. He alone is Lord. So they thrived by loyalty and subversion. And you see that in the life of Daniel, right? He was in leadership and he was seeking the good of the country, helping him out, giving him, being, kind of being a prophet, helping the king out. But he would not cross the line when his leader said, no, actually, I want you to bow to me. You see loyalty and subversion happening. Daniel goes up and prays because only one God is king. You see the difference there? He's helping, but he's not going to cross the line because God is king, not this Nebuchadnezzar dude. He'll, he'll serve Nebuchadnezzar, do the very best possible. He's going to help the, the city thrive, but he's not king and he's not Lord. He is not God. Loyalty and subversion. How would you have handled this? Let's talk about you, me. How would we have handled being taken away, our identity stripped from us, our culture, you know, our tribe in, 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 in shambles, and we're left in a foreign land, in a foreign nation, what would you have done? Would you have rebelled? Some did. And we, we have documented it. Some did. Some decided, I'm just going to become a Babylonian. Some did that too. All right? How would you have handled it? Would you have rebelled, integrated? Or maybe would you have been a force of good in a foreign land but still serve Jesus as king? How would you, how would you have handled it? And, and here's what we can learn today, and this is where we'll land the plane. Here's what we can learn. Just like those ancient you know, folks from Judah taken far from their homeland in exile in Babylon, we seek the good of the country, but we serve Jesus as king. Jesus is king. That spans political parties. That spans race, gender, culture. We serve the country. We want to see the country do well, but Jesus is king. There is no other king but Jesus. In the early days of the church, they would say, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Amongst a culture that said, Caesar is Lord. Many early Christians lost their lives because they said, no, Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. They learned to be a people in exile, a people of God awaiting home. They sought the good of the country, but they served Jesus as king. What if we could do that better? What if we could love our city? We just did a series on this. Love our town, love our community, serve the country, vote for crying out loud. But Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Spans all that. We are citizens, really, of another kingdom. And until new heavens and new earth comes, we're to seek the good of the country, but serve Jesus as king. We don't have to adopt all the practices of culture. We serve Jesus as king, but we seek the good. Does that make sense? 
Just like those exiles had to learn, just like Jeremiah said, pray for the country, pray for the people in leadership, serve the good, thrive, help others, but Jesus is king. Loyalty and subversion. That's the concept. Just imagine Jesus when he returns and finally ends our exile for good. And we get to be a people who are now finally home. Imagine that moment. New heavens and new earth. And Jesus saying, thanks for obeying me. Loving the country, serving the country, but never forgetting that I'm king. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your love and faithfulness, your mercies that are new every morning, even while we, just like the people so long ago from Judah, were taken away in exile. Father, we're, we're also a people in exile. To some, we're awaiting home, but we want to serve you as king. Father, help each of us serve and, and seek the good of our country, of our city, our town, but never forget that you are king and Lord. Father, help us to make sure we have that priority set. And Father, I, I just pray your Holy Spirit would move in each of our hearts where we could take this to heart this week. That, Father, we would learn to be loyal but also subversive. That you are king and you alone are God. In Jesus' name, amen.